cash, every movie costs $2,184. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Backtracks Theme Music. My name is Corey Morissette, joined, as always, by John Mariano. How you doing, John? I'm doing fantastic, Corey. Uh, you know, the, the folks don't know this, but we've taken a couple of weeks off. I'm just in back from a road trip down to Florida, and I am tanned and ready to go. John got to high-five a Wookiee, which is on my bucket list. I, I, got, I got to high-five the Wookiee. <laughs> Oh, I'm jealous, but we're not talking about Wookiees tonight. We're, we're talking about uh, actually a good friend of the creator of the Wookiee, uh, which is, of course, George Lucas and his good buddy, Steven Spielberg. Uh, not early Spielberg. We're talking later Spielberg. Actually, it's his uh, last movie released in 2022. John, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Fablemans? So so The, Fa- the Fablemans is, is an indirect autobiography about St- Steven Spielberg. I call it an indirect one because it doesn't follow the Spielbergs and Steven Spielberg. It follows Sammy Fableman and his family. And they he leads a very similar life to Steven Spielberg in a lot of ways, including his love um, of, of cinema and his desire to become a filmmaker later in life. His The timing of his life is similar to Spielberg. And he, he reaches adolescence in the 50s and 60s. And, and you know that seems to be the backdrop: small town America, and the the uh, rocky marriage of his parents are the backdrop of this. And I think that part of the reason why Spielberg didn't do this as a direct, um, you, you know, a, a direct uh, autobiography is to protect his parents to a degree because it, it gets into some pretty uh, pretty graphic stuff as far as far as the breakup of their marriage. And he can at least now he has plausible deniability on what's true and what he's changed uh, uh, and a lot of things because um, the mother isn't faithful to the father and that leads to a lot of problems and she's not faithful with a very close friend of the family and um, Sammy, the the, the Spielberg um, avatar in the movie. Um, is editing some old family films and 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 catches the affair and is caught in the middle and it, it becomes very complicated. So th- there's a lot of layers to this movie, but I, I really chose it because, you know, we celebrate film and we celebrate movies here. And this was one, this is a, a, a movie that celebrates film in some of the greatest ways. And, and, and the films inspired easily the most influential filmmaker of our lifetime. Um, yeah. You know, with all due respect to Chris Nolan and, and, and James Cameron and, and several others that people can rattle off. Um, in, in Up to and including um, one of my own favorites, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg has done four quadrant films for the bulk of his career and affected generations with his films. Um, you, you know, as, as a family filmmaker, there, there, there is there is none better. And I would argue that in in the scope of, of of film history, I would put him up against Hitchcock, and that's probably about it. Well, I I think that is very fair, and uh, uh, like you said, it, it's you know it's about uh, a family, and you know the, the kind of splitting of that family in certain situations. Uh, yeah, to me, it was very much about the power of cinema, and uh, because that's the thing that carries uh, Stephen in real life and Sammy in the film. 
uh, kind of through, uh, you know, this diff- difficult period uh, in his family's uh, life. And uh, I love that we get to see a young uh, Steven Spielberg in a way, kind of, you know, not, not just making his eight millimeter films, but making like he actually recreated the ones he actually made uh, back when he was a boy, uh, when he got his first eight millimeter camera, he did a world war II movie. Uh, and, but, and all that is kind of shown in the film. And uh, it's very much like a, a biography that I, I very much enjoyed uh, of Steven Spielberg, who uh, like yourself, John is a filmmaker. I very much hold in, in extremely high regard. Um, and his parents, uh, I was just reading some trivia here, had been nagging him to put him on the big screen uh, just prior to their deaths. And uh, his mom passed away, I believe it was 2017, and his dad just a year or two later. Uh, so unfortunately, they didn't get to see it come to fruition. But uh, uh, Steven Spielberg had been dangling to make this film for a great many years. And it's coming at kind of a downturn in his career where he's not the box office draw he used to be. Uh, you know, his last few films, even things like the BFG, uh, you know, didn't really hit. Uh, Ready Player One, I think, was his last probably box office. Would you even call that a hit? It did okay, but it wasn't wasn't a blockbuster. But I also think it's by design. It's not like 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 Spielberg's been offered to do Indiana Jones movies. He's been offered to do um, Star Wars movies, right? I think Spielberg's at a point in his career where he has earned. He's doing what he wants to do. He didn't do the BFG because it it was a valuable IP. That that could be a mega blockbuster. He, he he did the BFG because it was a book that speaks to him, and it was a subject that interests him, right? And, and the same thing with West Side Story, you know. And West Side Story is probably one of his bigger hits lately. Um, he he did he did Ready Player One, and there was a high high degree of difficulty with that movie. I don't think he necessarily wanted to do that movie, but he needed to do that movie. Because he was the only person that could secure as much IP as that movie needed, even if it wasn't the right IP according to the book, mm-hmm. right? Um, there was just a very high degree of difficulty, and he was able to negotiate several cameos of of, of characters and and vehicles and things of that nature, because he's Steven Spielberg, and he could put in a phone call and say, "I'm Steven Spielberg." Um, but but I think for the most part, he's doing a lot of these personal, smaller movies now, which he hasn't had the opportunity to do in his career. Um, and uh, I, on, on, uh, it comes at an interesting time, John, in, in, in cinema history where, you know, you know, 2021, 2022, all that. It's all about intellectual property. It's all about the franchise. It's all about your Marvels, your DCs, your Star Wars, your what have you. Now, all those uh, franchises are really faltering. And I think people are kind of getting sick of being spoon fed the exact same thing through cinema where, you know, had a West Side Story come out this year may have done a lot better. The Fablemans only grossed uh, forty five million dollars, which were Steven Spielberg. That used to be his opening weekend. Had this opened like this year, you know, I think audience was ready to make that turn and go look for more uh, smaller personal films than your latest giant CGI fuckfest. So, 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 so I know that I know this is the, the the common narrative here, but I actually think that we're see we've seen this before in Hollywood, because because when <clears throat> when we were children, I, I remember having an, a conversation with my great uncle, my, my my grandfather's brother, and he was talking about John Ford, and he was talking about westerns, and he's like westerns will never die, and he's like they're cheap to make, and everybody loves them, yada 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 yada. And our generation saw to the death, not to the death of the Western, but the Western isn't what it used to be, right? It is not the box office draw it used to be. The last really big Western 
was probably a Quentin Tarantino movie that was released, and it was more of a Tarantino movie than a Western. Mm-hmm. You know, he's released se- several of them. Um, you, you know, the last pure Western might be something, the last pure Western blockbuster might be like The Mask of Zorro with Antonio Banderas. Um, you, you, you know, you know, I know there's been other Westerns who that have come out since, but I'm talking blockbuster mega movie. Um, we, we just don't see it a lot anymore. And the blockbuster, ironically, is what, what, what kind of put the nail in the coffin. You, you know, if you look at the Spielberg, who was a huge John Ford fan, as we can tell from this movie, um, you know, goes off and he makes Jaws and he, he makes he he basically creates the blockbuster. And that becomes the story of the 80s and 90s. And then the blockbuster starts to struggle a little bit with, with, with the dawn of the comic book movie, which we conflate with blockbusters, but they were a genre unto themselves. And now we're, tw- so that was about 20 years in, and that now we're 20 years into the comic book movie, and we're seeing that start to s- slow down. And I expect that we're going to get the next thing in the cycle pretty soon. And I think it might be more movies like this. And it's not just comic book movies. You look at franchises like uh, Indiana Jones or Fast X, uh, Mission Impossible, all are underperforming because people are, are going to these movies that are kind of the same thing over and over again and way too long and thinking, why? Why am I doing this? But smaller films like The Fablemans, I think, are what audiences are going to go to. The most anticipated film of the year right now is Barbie. Uh, granted, based on a on a toy, but you know, not based on existing film franchise or, or look at all the buzz around Oppenheimer right now. And you notice how we've kind of come full circle on before it used to be how great the computer effects were and how many visual effect shots were in a movie. I remember uh, Star Wars episode two, oh, there's 3000 effect shots in this film. Episode three had 4,500. And that was the big kind of calling card. Now we're, we're complimenting movies for having zero CGI and visual effect shots. Oppenheimer did the entire Trinity test explosion with no CGI enhancements on it. And, and that's what's impressing people. We're kind of coming full circle on some of this stuff. No, I, I, I think, I, I think we're also, it, it's weird because we're also oversaturated with blockbuster movies, right? Like, there used to be like one or two mega budgeted movie per summer. And, and, and they, they were normally had fingers pointed at them, right? Like, like Dick Tracy was a big, big budgeted movie and, and, and got a lot of crap because it was coming out on the heels of Batman. And it wasn't, a, Dick Tracy wasn't as cool of a character as Batman. You go back and watch that movie and the art direction's fantastic. The acting is a lot of fun. It's, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. But 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 it ate a lot of shit when it came out because of its budget, you know, and that became a theme of the '90s when movies like Waterworld came out. Everybody on the planet was rooting against Titanic because of its budget, and it just was it it was the it was the giant movie that could. Um, and James Cameron just showed like, look, I I can do what they did with Waterworld, but if you craft it correctly for the audience, people are going to want to see it. Um. You know, uh, now now here we are now, and we're looking at things like The Flash, where the budget, you can't even figure out the budget because that thing was in development for so long that it would have never been a success, no matter what it made, right? Like, um, you know, coming with problems like that. You're coming with problems with things like Indiana Jones that are built to be a smaller movie. Like the franchise itself, I know it's a big blockbuster franchise, but it's built off of the old serials with practical effects, and 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 the budget doesn't need to be two hundred million dollars on a film like that. It just doesn't. 
Mm-hmm. And, and here we here here we are, and we're making this a two hundred million dollar film, and going, well, it didn't succeed. Well, you didn't produce a movie commensurate with what the franchise is supposed to be. Yeah, and right? uh, I, I brought it up a few times. Though you look at a movie like Oppenheimer, cost a hundred million dollars. Uh, it's probably going to open to around fifty, which for a big budget three hundred million dollar movie would be a big failure. For a hundred million dollar movie, that that's a great opening. And right. it's probably going to have decent legs. And it, it's got IMAX screens locked up for the next three weeks. It's probably going to gross, you know, six, seven hundred worldwide, which for a hundred million dollar movie is a phenomenal hit. And, and when you when, when you look at movies like the Guardians of the Galaxy, The Flash, Indiana Jones, there's a lot of sameness in a lot of the demographic that they're targeting. When Barbie comes out as counter programming, right? It's it's brilliant. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing else like that on the market right now. It's helmed by Greta Gerwig, one, one of the best filmmakers out there right now. And, and regardless, like, like I, I know, I know it's getting good to mixed reviews based on who who is reviewing it, but it, it seems like generally the audience is enjoying it, and it's 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 going to make his bank, right? You and you and you and I were talking earlier um, before we got on the air about about. Like the Meg Two is coming out, the Meg Two will be a successful movie. Will it make as much as some of these other movies? No, but it also doesn't have the budget behind it of some of these other movies, right? When you look at the cast, no offense to the cast, they're not getting paid the same as the mega stars and the other ones. You have one or two big stars, but the, the, those actors, like Jason Statham's, not making as much money as Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's just not, and that's okay. You know, he could still carry a movie. I will still go see a Jason Statham movie. And I'm excited to see him kick a giant Megalodon in the face. Like, that's an exciting concept to me. Oh, me too. I can't wait to see the Meg 2. I'm hoping there's a good song on it uh, so we can talk about it here. But in order to talk about the Fablemans, uh, we had to find a song. And it's got a, you know, a pretty eclectic uh, soundtrack. Obviously, uh, John Williams came back uh, for the first time in a few years on a Spielberg film with a great little uh, uh, orchestral score. But uh, we picked a little track from the Crystals uh, called the Do Ron Ron, which uh, everybody knows this song. It, it's a great little ditty. And uh, we probably won't have too much to say about the Crystals or the Do Ron Ron. My first uh, experience with the Do Ron Ron was from a different film. I wanted to play a little clip for John here before we get going. Uh, this is from the movie Stripes. Uh, I'm going to play it here because we're going to cover Stripes, I'm sure, in its entirety. Uh, and we can pick a song like... Uh, uh, what what were they marching to? There she was, just walking down the street singing "Do Wa Diddy Diddy Dum Diddy Do." That's the song we'll do for that one. But uh, there's a great scene in Stripes where Harold Ramis uh, is teaching like an English immersion class to a bunch of uh, foreign folks, and uh, he couldn't really teach them English, so instead he taught them this song. Okay, that's really very good. I'd like to try it just one more time, and then we'll call it a day. I met her on a Monday, and my heart stood still. Somebody told me that her name was Jill. Okay, great, great. All right, we'll see you next week. We'll learn some new tunes. We'll have a great time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love that. I don't know if Stripes as a film holds up all that well, but uh, R.A.P. and God bless Harold Ramis, uh, one of his best performances. Yeah, I mean, I I think with modern times, people might have some comments about so, so some of some of the jokes that happen in it, but uh, for for my money, it's one one of Bill Murray's best. 
and it has some of my favorite lines. Uh, it used to get me in a lot of trouble uh, whenever I'd try and cross the border into an America uh, on a weekend, uh, you know, to get go get drunk with my friends. And the border agent would ask, have you ever been convicted of a, of a crime in Canada? And I would say, convicted? No, never convicted. And they'd usually hold me at the border for a couple hours to make sure I wasn't drunk. But uh, lines like that is what made uh, Stripe so special for me. But let's get back to the Fablemans and the Crystals. Uh, this was a big single for them all the way back in 1963. Let's check out a little bit of Dadu Ron Ron. Oh, that's just good stuff. Oh yeah, it's it, it it's good good old um, I mean I mean we call this doo wop, right? Yeah, yeah yeah. It's it's not it's not even rock and roll yet, or is it rock and roll? It's not rock and roll. I don't know. Uh, I I think this is more pop uh, than rock and roll. If you're going to go into those kind of categories, it's kind of R and B, kind of pop, a little bit of rock and roll. Do Do you remember what part of the movie this comes up in? I don't actually. It's been uh, a few months since I've seen the Fablemans. Do you know? I'm trying to look it up. I'm trying to look it up. I, 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 I... It has to be one of the feel good sections of the movie, though, because it's a feel good song. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, go go to our favorite site, What Song, and see and see if I can find it while while we listen to the next uh, run of the song. Okay, and just for music fans out there, uh, this is, of course, uh, produced and written by Phil Spector in that big uh, wall of sound that he was known for uh, back in the 60s. Uh, so let's go back to Da Do Run Run. I love the the vocals. Uh, you, you get those old girl groups uh, from the 60s uh, singing beautifully. I believe it was Dolores Brooks uh, who sang lead on this. I'm just looking up the, the lineup. In 63, we had uh, Dolores Brooks, uh, Patricia Wright, Dolores Kennebrew, and Barbara Alston doing a fantastic job vocally on this song. How are you coming out on your Fableman's trivia there, John? I, I found it. So, so Sa- Sammy and Monica arrive at the beach for Ditch Day in 1964. So, so, so they're doing senior ditch day, and Sammy's going to record it with with, with his uh, camera. And Sammy prepares um, to film the event, and and they're having fun with their classmates. So I was right; it was one of the feel good fun parts of the movie. I was assuming it was it, it was with the family, but but it's it's with uh, Sammy and his girlfriend on the beach, and it, it's it's done. There's this whole backdrop backdrop of uh, anti semitism when they move to California. And, and and you know the movie the movie has so many layers to it in true Spielberg fashion, right? It's not one thing. It's not just about him becoming a filmmaker. It's about him growing up, dealing with anti-Semitism, making a move as a teenager, 
at an inopportune time where all of a sudden he's going from a, a place where his culture is very much part of the neighborhood and not just accepted, but, but, but part of the lifeblood of the neighborhood. And he moves to California and, and it's very waspy. And, and all, all, of, all of a sudden, you know, he's dealing with anti-Semitism in some of the worst ways and some of the worst bullying I've seen on film. Um, at least from a high school standpoint. Um, so, so, so it's, it's, it's very well shot. It's very well acted. Um, Judd Hirsch does an incredible job as the uncle in this movie. Michelle Williams is fantastic as the mother. And what's his name who played the Riddler? Help me out here. Please. Paul Dano. Paul Dano is incredible as the dad. Um, I was very surprised to see Seth Rogen in a semi-serious turn. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays uh, the father's best friend and also uh, Michelle Williams' boyfriend in the movie. Um, it has very awkward relationships with the children. Um, it's I, it's a very layered and textured movie, and I'm trying to talk about it without giving up too much. I have a feeling a lot of people haven't seen this one, and I think more people should. There is an incredible scene towards the end where Sammy meets his hero, John Ford. Oh, I wanted uh, to save that for the end, but I wanted the the John Ford scene is one of my favorite scenes in cinema in maybe the last twenty years. So, so, so why don't we tease it now and save it for when you want to bring it up later? Okay, okay. Uh, we're coming up to a cool sax solo too, so I thought that'd be a, a good moment uh, in the song to to listen to here. Uh, just real quick, uh, b- back to the Crystals and to do Ron Ron. Uh, this is actually. Uh, on uh, Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Uh, it was actually uh, listed number 366 in the 2021 Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Let's get back to it. All right, let's talk about the end of the film and a young uh, Sammy Fableman uh, meeting the legendary John Ford, who was played by another legendary director, David Lynch, which I thought was really, really cool. It was was so cool. And and it's like, it was great to give David Lynch props by having him play the legendary John Ford and and give him that kind of stature. And Spielberg, it's, it's almost like Spielberg taking care of one of his own. It's you know, Lynch might not be a household name for most non-cinephiles, but but anybody who loves movies and 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 just loves 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 things created, Lynch is a staple. It's really something, and uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, he uh, he initially didn't want to do it, uh, and they just kept bugging him and bugging him. And I think he said he'd do it if he got to keep his wardrobe. Is that right? I mean, I mean, it sounds right. You probably know more about this trivia than I do, but but. <laughs> Um, he does such a good job, and what was funny was, I, I was watching I, I was watching with my uncle, and I was watching with my aunt and uncle and the kids, 
because I was at, I was I was down in Florida and we're watching this movie together, and my uncle goes, "I've heard stories about John Ford, and this this seems incredibly accurate from what I've heard. He was not a, he he was not a very nice or kind man, and he was very difficult to work with." Yeah, <laughs> but he also has the best line in the movie too. Uh, when Sammy comes into his office, he's cantankerous, doesn't want to teach his kid anything, but he really wants some some advice about making films. And uh, he said, take a look at that painting over there. Where's the horizon? Oh, it's, well, it's up near the top. Okay, take a look at that painting over there. Where's the horizon? Oh, it's closer to the bottom. Okay, here's what you need to know. When the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. Now, good luck to you and get the fuck out of my office. It, it it is such a great line read by Lynch, and it is so perfect, and it, it makes a perfect T-shirt. <laughs> yes, it does. That's a great idea, and you, you can tell David Lynch believes it too. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 you you can tell like like that's one of the moments in the scene that it, it, one of the scenes in the film that just feels real. It feels like this actually happened to Spielberg, and it was like a wake up call of like. Do this, do this, don't do this, get the fuck out. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that the very last shot of the film is Sammy on the lot, and he's walking away, and initially the horizon's in the middle, and then the camera abruptly, abruptly shoots up to the sky, so the horizon is, is up at the top. I thought that was really, really clever and, and very fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a playful movie. It is, a, it is a love letter to cinema in a lot of ways. And, you know, as much as... I think Ready Player One was written as a tribute. The book, at least, was written as a tribute to Spielberg. Spielberg pays it all back by by writing a love letter to cinema and then giving us the fans a little a little doorway into what might his life and his childhood have been like for such a a filmmaker who has impacted so many of us. And such a great screenplay. This is one that uh, Steven Spielberg actually contributed to. He hasn't written a lot of movies. Uh, he wrote Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, he kind of co-wrote AI uh, when Stanley Kubrick died. And he worked on this film with Tony Kirshner. It's, it's a fantastic script. Uh, great lines everywhere. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Uncle Boris. Uh, you know, he had a great line, family, art, it will tear you in two. Uh, Michelle Williams, as the mom, had a great line, movies are dreams that you never forget. Like, this is just such a love letter from Steven Spielberg to movies and to his family. And it's so smartly shot. I, I, I was watching with my aunt, and there's a scene where Michelle Williams is dancing in the woods and she's backlit. And my aunt goes, oh, somebody should cover her up. And my, my uncle's reacting, oh, she looks fine. She looks fine. And she's like, no, this is the 50s. It's a very modest time. This is inappropriate. And no sooner does my aunt say that, then the daughter jumps up in front of her mom and is embarrassed by what's happening. And it's just that that moment should my aunt's reaction to that scene my uncle's reaction to that scene and then, and then the daughter's reaction to that scene show me how smart this screenplay is because it's almost like the movie heard them reacting to the movie All right, that's the legendary crystals 
and to do run run from 1963 a great track from a great movie john was there anything else about the fablemans that we should talk about here tonight yeah there's one more thing and i want to tie it into something else i've seen because i want to give you a suggestion at the, at the end of this and that you had asked me why i wanted to talk about this movie and i had a couple of rainy days da- down in florida and rainy days when you're on vacation aren't fun so we we while the rain was happening we had some movies playing and then at one point my uncle took the kids to go see Indiana Jones, which I had already seen, and my aunt had meetings. So I I, I, I was sitting in their living room just flipping through, and I found this movie. Um, I, I'm not sure. It, it's written 5-25-77, but it's really May 25th, 1977 is, is, is the movie. And it, it is similar to The Fablemans in that it's, an, it's a biographical film, it's not about Spielberg, though, and it's it's really not about Lucas, which is what I thought it was going to be. But it's it's about this um, filmmaker called Patrick Reed Johnson, and it's before he was a filmmaker. And uh, it's a recommendation to anybody listening, including you, Corey. Um, it 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 stars uh, the 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 kid from uh, from what was that show? Um, God, I'm, I'm blanking on everything right now, Corey. And you ended out <laughs> when you blank on things, but but what, what um, John Daly from uh, from Freaks and Geeks, but he he's a he's a little bit older in this, and uh, he he plays Patrick Reed Johnson, who who would in his career go on and become a special effects artist, do the miniatures for things like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, eventually um, direct direct Dragon Heart with uh, Sean Connery and Dennis Quaid. And a movie called Space Invaders. Like he, he's done movies that you've seen, but he's a lesser-known filmmaker. But but this is about a particular day in his life where he finds out Star Wars is being released, and the movie is about how he comes to learn that, and what happens on the day Star Wars really is released with him attempting to try to get a bunch of people to see it. And it's a fascinating story where a very young. Uh, Patrick Reed Johnson gets to meet Spielberg as he's filming Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then he he gets on the set of Star Wars as they're editing the movie. Um, and it's a true story, and it's remark- re- remarkable and interesting to anybody. And it's got a little bit of surrealism to it, but it, I feel like it ties in pretty well to this movie, you know, especially with uh, you know somebody playing Spielberg in that movie. And I'm not going to give too much else away other than there's a lot of lead up where you learn about Patrick Johnson's life or, you know, not, not necessarily early on, but, but kind of like the Fablemans where it follows him over the course of several months leading up to the star Wars release. And then it gives you the entire release day of star Wars. And then it gives you about a month later to kind of show what the aftermath of that is. And I I recommend this movie to anybody listening. Um, it's not the Fablemans. It's not crafted by Spielberg. It's lower your expectations. But if you enjoy a movie like the Fablemans, you'll enjoy this. I'm gonna have to go check that out. I didn't even know this movie existed. Five twenty five seventy seven. I'm just doing some reading here. Uh, it was actually produced by Gary Kurtz, uh, who produced the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back uh, back in the day. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I happened to stumble upon it on the heels of seeing the Fablemans and the Fablemans put me in the mood for other true to life cinema. 
So I, I, I found something and I found something remarkably close close to the needle here. Well, that's awesome. So if you're as bored as I am with the latest Hollywood uh, summer films or the latest Marvel TV show, Secret Invasion, I, a new episode dropped like on Wednesday. and I mean, I'm not even bothered to watch it. It's so bad. Uh, and you want something a little a little more original, a little better made, go check out uh, 52577 and The Fablements. I, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Uh, Fablements especially is really an exceptional film. Uh, didn't win any Academy Awards, I don't believe, last year, which is kind of a shame. I thought I thought for sure it should have got uh, it, it, best, it was a uh, screenplay. It was a tough year, but there was a movie about a bagel and everything bagel that you know yeah. took took Hollywood by storm. Yep, that is very true. All right, John, uh, you got anything coming up that you want to tease or promote? Um, my tent. I guess that's a thing. If you want to see John Stain, go to his OnlyFans. Uh, geez, I wouldn't recommend it though. Uh, you should be paying people to look at that thing, my God. But uh, until next time, on behalf of John Mariano, my name is Corey Morissette. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Backtracks Theme Music. They tell me you want to be a picture maker. Um, yes, sir, I do. Why? This business, it'll rip you apart. Well, Mr. Ford, I... So what do you know about art, kid? I love your movie so much. No art. See that painting over there? Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. Yes, I do see it. Walk over to it. Well, what's in it? Describe it. Oh, okay. Um, so there are two guys, and they're on horseback and they're looking for something, so maybe they're scouting. No, no, where's the horizon? The, the horizon? Where is it? Yeah, uh, it's at the bottom. That's right. Walk over to this painting. Well? Right, okay, so there are five cowboys, you know. They no, no, Indian. no, no, no. Where's the goddamn horizon? Um, it's, it's there. Where? At the top of the painting. All right, get over here. Now remember this. When the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. Now, good luck to you and get the fuck out of my office. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure.